Thank you, Chris. I forgot to mention that Chris was leading worship today earlier. Sorry, you had to introduce yourself. Um, last week, Will, that's been leading worship for us, um, he, he left last week. It was last week. He went to join a, a church plant in Brady. And so right now in this, this interim time, as we're looking for uh, a worship leader to stay with us permanently, uh, Chris is actually part of Redeemer Round Rock church and they've come alongside to kind of partner with us and help us with leading worship because if I led worship it would be bad all right I'm just saying uh there there's not a musical thing that that is involved with my life so we're, we're thankful to Redeemer Round Rock um they're also part of the Acts 29 organization just this network of churches trying to help churches um if you have your bible go and turn to Matthew 16 and um, today we're going to use Matthew 16, part of Matthew 16 is kind of a, a launching point as we talk about what the church is, who makes up the church, what does it do. And this is a continuation of our series, Doctrine, Doctrine, Our DNA and Understanding Who We Are. Um, Edmund Clowney has a, a book, written a book, it's basically a textbook that, that's talking specifically about the church. And he said, the Lord who calls his church to worship and nurture also sends it through the centuries and across the continents to witness for him. And so it's it, with that understanding, with, with what he's saying is that God who calls his church to worship and to nurture the, the people around it also sends it out. And it's with that idea that we talk about the church today, this understanding of how we view our identity and strength as a church greatly determines the outcome of our efforts. And, and where we place our identity as the church will directly affect the efforts of our labor, the, the fruits of our labor, and what we do as the church. Because that's what people ask now, right? So, so what is the church? You, you get that often, or I get that often. They hear that we're planting a church, and it's always, what kind of church are you? Or what is the church? Because we, we live in a society that's increasingly marginalizing the church, trying to redefine the church. And, and not to the point of just understanding what church is, but is church even necessary? Is church just simply an aspect of Christianity that should have faded out by now? Have we reached this point in modern time that we can redefine what the church is? Are we in need of another reformation is how some people put it. That they, they link that with the Protestant Reformation of 1500 and say, are we in need of another one? Is the church in need to be reformed? And with that, I, I would agree yes, but it's not the way that they're talking. It's not a reform in changing what the church is, but it'd be a, a, a reformation in going back to what the church was and, and the root of its identity and strength. And it's critical that we understand that. As Watershed Church and this new work here, it's critical that we understand that identity. And, and when we understand that identity and who we are and what we believe, which is why we're talking this doctrine series through the summer, is then we're able to make up this one body that's the church and, and know that our part within this unity that is Christ's body, which is the church, and understanding that. Because when we see and have a proper understanding of our identity as the church, it leads us to a proper understanding of our mission and our message. If we get our identity and our strength off, then our mission is going to be off, then our message is going to be off because it's rooted in something that's not where it should be. And so everything from that point is off. So if you will, if you had Matthew 16 open, um, follow along with me. We're going to start in verses 13, or in verse 13, and read through um, verse 19. In verse 13 of Matthew 16, 
It says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, But who do you say I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged his disciples not to tell, to tell no one that he was the Christ. If y'all will pray with me, we'll ask the Spirit to guide us through this today. Father God, we thank you that, that you have not left us alone. God, that you've given us truth. And God, we acknowledge right now that we need your, your, your help, your strength, your power to discern your truth, to understand your truth so that we can apply it to our lives, not as how we would like it to fit, but how you intended it, God. And we just pray that, that we submit ourselves to your authority. We submit ourselves to your truth. And God, we just pray that you would help us understand that today. And so in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we see here in this first passage that the first thing about the church that we need to understand is that the church is planted firmly. We, we see a dramatic statement given by Peter here. Jesus in this, this conversation, it's an interesting conversation. They're, they're walking or, or whatever's happening and he asks, so who do people say I am? And, and they give random answers, right? John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, maybe one of the other prophets. But they have all these things of people of who they say God is or Jesus was. But it's interesting, just in the start of this, do you notice that no one thought he was the Messiah? No, no one here thought Jesus was the Messiah, which is very interesting because it just shows that he didn't look anything like what they pictured the Messiah to be. I mean, they were, they were looking at him as, maybe this is John the Baptist, somehow reincarnated and coming back because he had been killed. And, and Herod even, even thought this. You can see that in, in other parts of Matthew. But the Elijah, someone else, but no one even thought that he was Messiah. So it's interesting when, when Jesus asked that question that all these random people that they thought he was, yet no one said that he was a Messiah. It was all these other famous or spiritual giants that had gone before. And then, so he changed it. He said, okay, that's what they think I am. Who do you think I am? And that's where it gets interesting because Peter, which if we, if we pause for a second, I've got to be honest, that I'm a little envious of Peter at times because the, the spontaneity that he had in his life, I don't often find. He was just that guy that would blurt out an answer. He, he was that guy that would just do something, which most of the time, he was wrong, so I'm, I'm not envious of that. But, I'm, the, but the ability for him to just throw it out there, to, to say what it was, I don't have. Not that I'm this calm and collected person. I just don't rarely blurt out the answer. Even if I knew the right answer, I can remember in school, if I, if I knew the right answer, it was very, very few times that I actually would say it. Why? Because I thought it might be wrong. Peter didn't have that problem. He just said it. It, it, whatever he said was out there. So I kind of I am envious of Peter in that. I wish I was a little more that way in interacting with people, just be willing to say something. I might be thinking it, but I don't have that ability that he did of just saying it. Sometimes I would like to have that ability, even if I was wrong, just to throw it out there. 
but, but I don't. So, so you see when Peter does this, you can almost see the other disciples kind of like, ah, oh, here he goes again. But, but for once he's right. So he says, who do you say that I am? And, and, and Peter replies, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And what we see here is very interesting. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And look how Jesus responds. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And see, what's interesting about this is while Peter had the ability often to, to throw it out there, the one time that he was dead on right, it wasn't because he knew it. It's because it was been revealed to him. And see, that's the same thing that happens for us today. If we get to the point in our lives or we see people get to the point in their lives where they declare that Jesus is Lord, it's been revealed to them. We don't naturally do this. We don't just see Jesus and think, Messiah, Christ, Son of the living God. See, he didn't just say he was the Messiah. He said he was God, the Son of the living God. He summed up everything. And Jesus acknowledges it was revealed to you. And the same thing happens for us. If we get to this point and we see people, and even ourselves, when we've called on Jesus as Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God, it's because the Spirit's revealed that to us. Because we, just like the people that were talked about in this story, we don't see him as Christ. We see him as maybe another teacher or a good person, a moral person. But without the help of the Spirit, we don't, just blurt out this answer that he is the Christ. And that's exactly what Peter had. It wasn't his knowledge. It was knowledge given to him as the Spirit revealed that to him. And so it's critical to understand that because then what follows next is the establishment of the church. Jesus is explaining what the point of the church is. And it's actually, it's a little tricky. There's some more linguistic work once we go. Verse 16 and 17, pretty simple. Who do they say I am? Even 15, 16, 17. Who I say I am? Peter replies. Jesus says yes. It's pretty simple. It's pretty, yeah. Then it gets tricky when we get to verse 18. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what, what is Jesus referring to here? What, what is this? Because obviously now, okay, I'm going to build my church. So if we miss this, then we're going to miss how Christ is building his church. And there's, so it's critical to understand that. So, so what's happening here? Because Peter's name means rock. It's a rock. And, and so what's going on here? Really, we need to decide, define who the rock is that he's talking about. Or what is the rock he's talking about. Some people um, throughout history have said that this is where Peter becomes the head of the church, and literally it's on Peter that he's going to build his church. This would be a, a Catholic view. That's where they get the, the papal succession going back to Peter. Is because Jesus says, on this rock, I'm going to build it. So that's the authority of Peter. And then all the, all the popes have gone through Peter's line. That's, they're the next pope in that succession. That's them saying, okay, when Jesus says, you're Peter, you're the rock, and on this rock, literally on Peter, I'm going to build my church. That's where they get the authority of that. That's where they go through there. Still others say that it's the confession. It's not actually Peter himself, it's what he said, that you're the Christ, son of the living God. That that, that is what Jesus is meaning here, that that is the rock he's going to build his church on. It was the confession, not Peter himself, but the confession Peter made. And still there's a, a, a third view, not as widely known. It's a view that I'll explain why I agree with more. It's, that, it's almost that Jesus here is using a play on words. Is that he's used, he knows what Peter's name means. 
He's kind of using his play and says, okay, you're Peter, you're a rock, but on this rock I'm going to build a church. And so it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of taking that second view of the confession, but changing the focus of the confession into the rock. So he's meaning that I, Jesus, I'm the rock that I'll build my church on. That Peter confessed it. And so it's the, on that confession, understanding, because what's the point of his confession? You're the son of God. You're the Christ. And it's on that that he'll build his church. And the reason we, we look at that and we say that really that second view, we, we, don't, we don't agree with the, the first view that Peter is the rock. We think Jesus is the point of the church. So it's not on Peter that it was built, but it's not really on the confession that of, of Peter because if we look at Peter's own words, he never thought of himself anywhere in the building of the church. If we look at his, one of his famous sermons in Acts 4, Acts 4.11 says, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's saying there that it's Jesus. This is one of his most famous sermons. He's in front of Sanhedrin. He says, no, Jesus is the stone that you rejected. He's the cornerstone. He's the rock. It has nothing to do with himself. It has nothing to what he said. It's Jesus is the stone. And then and in 1 Peter, if you want to turn to 1 Peter, we'll be there for just a little bit. The, uh, 1 Peter 2, in verse 4, he says, As you come to him, a living, come to him, Jesus, a living stone. This is 1 Peter 2, 4. says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected my men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones, being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God. Through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. Behold I'm laying a stone. A cornerstone. Chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him. Shall not be put to shame. For the honor is for you who believe. But those who do not believe. The stone the builders rejected. Has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling. And a rock of offense. So what Peter's saying there. In, in his, his letter here. That Jesus is that cornerstone. Jesus is that precious stone. Jesus is that stone that becomes a stumbling block. Why is it a stumbling block? Because we don't know who Jesus is. We don't readily see him. And so when we see Jesus, that's literally where everything fractures off. You either understand through the revelation of the Spirit that he is, Christ, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, or you don't. And so who Jesus is, everything that's built off of that is where everything splits. Both of these passages we see that Peter in Acts 4 and in 1 Peter 2 that Peter didn't consider himself the cornerstone of the church. It was Jesus. Jesus was the rock that the church was built on. Jesus was the cornerstone that the foundation of the church was set true on. And we should come to that realization and remember that declaration, who Jesus is, the cornerstone of his church, if we're going to be true and pure in who we are as the church. Because the corner is the key to a building. Remember I used to frame houses right out of high school and and. The group of guys that I worked with was a little sketchy. It was like you never wanted to be on the other side of a board if we were doing it because they just try to go real fast. If they ever missed the stud, then the, the guns were shooting the nails through. So you had to be strategic in your placement while everyone was working. It's kind of sketchy. They just were that type of guys. Not that all framers are that way. The ones I worked with were. But it was interesting. When you get to a new place and we just have the slab, all of a sudden all the sketchy went away. When they started laying out the house, all of a sudden, they weren't playing around. They're serious. Why? Because that's the most critical point. If they messed that up, everything that was built on that would be off. 
If the corners on the house weren't exactly square, even when they laid it out, everything they built upon that would be off. And you would see it drastic, more drastic the further you went. That's the same with the church. If we miss on the cornerstone, if we miss on the foundation of the church, then everything we do will be off center. Everything we'll be do that we do will become off. And that's what happens when you see today Jesus a lot of times in church is, is meant simply a teacher or they're going to sprinkle Jesus on a little bit. We'll, we'll, we'll preach how to, to live a better life and we'll add Jesus in because that makes it right. That's not what Peter here is saying. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 16. And so he's the cornerstone. He's not just something you add in. He is the something. Everything goes back to him. We are a Jesus church because that's what scripture teaches. That it's all about him. We must be firmly planted in that. And if we're not, then everything that we try to do from this point out will be off. So it's time that we as Christians follow that example. Follow Peter's example. Understand who he is. If we've seen this revealed to us, if we've declared and understand that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, then we should live our lives as a body and individually with that leading our life. That's, that's what the, the last song that we just sang said, right? It's that the rock won't move, that his word's strong. The rock won't move, his love can't be undone. The rock won't move, his word is strong. The rock won't move, his love can't be undone. And if that's what we need to root ourselves in, the rock, that firm foundation, that true cornerstone, because then as the church, we can properly move out. Then as the church, when we're firmly planted on that, we can see who we're actually being rooted in, firmly planted on, sent out from. And when we get that right, everything else falls in place. And when we get that right, we see that then we're going to be united on mission. So if we get that right, that Jesus is the cornerstone, he's the foundation of the church, he's the authority of the church, he's the ultimate authority of the church. Everything we do as a church is submitted under his authority then we see that we can be united in mission because then we know what the mission is because then we can find out what we're supposed to do. So first we see that mission work out locally. We're united in mission locally. If you still have 1 Peter open, we'll look at verse 9. 1 Peter 2, 9. As he continues this passage of saying he's the cornerstone in verse 9, 1 Peter 2, 9 says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, so this comes, this, this, these two verses come right after Peter says, no, he was the stumbling block. He is the cornerstone. He's the precious stone. So you should come to him as a church, and we see what happens as a result of that. When we put ourselves firmly planted, we're united in mission. We see that we're chosen. In Christ, we're chosen. In Christ, we're a royal priesthood. In Christ, we're a holy nation. In Christ, we're a people of God. In Christ, we're called to proclaim his message. That's what it's talking about. So, what is the message we proclaim, right? Okay, I get we're supposed to proclaim the message. So what is the message? That's the second part of verse 9. That you proclaim what? The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. That is the message of the church. It's the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. That's what we do. That's the message the church should proclaim. That's the message. The excellencies of him who's called us, what? Out of darkness into light. There's, it's, it's that simple. The excellencies of him who God the Father who saw us while we were dead in our trespasses loved us so much that he sent his son 
so that we might live. That's the excellencies of him. So how do we do that then? If, if we're going to tell that story, how do we tell it? We tell it through what happened in our life. And, and here we get, people always get, get bogged up in this. Tell the story how the gospel changed your life. Okay, well, you, you get people like Lindsay. I didn't tell her I was going to talk about her. This is a good thing. She's over in the gym with the kids. But um, when you look at my story and hers, they're complete opposites. And so forever, it was, how can she tell her story that, that was changed? Because her life was relatively, quote, good by the world's standards. Because it's still a story from, from being brought out of darkness into light, out of death to life. That's the amazing part of the story. It's not, go be as bad as you can and then be redeemed. We're all redeemed. So we tell this story by simply living our lives, who we are. And that's why I say we're uniting a mission locally first because you do that in relationships. If you're going to tell your story, you have to know people. You have to get involved in their life. You have to tell that you were once living your life out aimlessly. You weren't chosen. You might have worldly success, but you, now you what? You've been called. But to do that and to make it believable, not that we put our power to make it believable, but to seem real and personal, it has to be done in relationships. To tell our story, we have to be in relationship with others. It's just that simple. We have to be in relationship with others. It's not something you say once in passing. You tell this story by living your life through the day-to-day with people around you. And that's the, that's the whole point of, of what Lindsay and I have done on purpose, trying to model with watershed. So when we moved to our new house, we were going to plant watershed. We just wanted to build relationships. We wanted to be, quote, normal people. If you watch the video, we'll have to, I haven't put it on the website yet, but we interviewed Ryan and Denise, and, and that's one thing that she said, that, that we were, quote, normal people, which I immediately had friends making fun of me, like, ah, you were finally normal or something like that. But we just wanted to be real people. It's time that we as Christians quit acting like we've got everything figured out and just be real people. And so what we did is we moved in and we just started living life. We started talking to people, being outside, getting to know people, living life. And that doesn't mean that we never spoke the gospel, but you see opportunities to change conversation into gospel. You see where people are finding satisfaction in everything that they have. And you say, well, I used to do that too. But this is what I found. You tell the story how you were drawn from darkness into light, the excellencies of him. And you can do that through just regular lifestyle. The problem is, is it's slow. We're an impatient society. We want it now, right? If we have to wait. I timed it the other day. I was getting frustrated at a light. And it never would go. And I timed it and it was like 45 seconds. I was like, really? Wait a second. Because if you've driven through Cove, you understand that it takes you an hour, Right? Every light, you're like, you've got to be kidding me. Most of the lights run for like a minute, minute and a half. It's devastating though, right? It takes forever to get through town. It really doesn't because we're impatient. We, we always want to go to the next thing and we do that to mission as well. We just simply need to tell our story. We, that's, what, that's what Lindsay and I purposely tried to model is just be real people living around. And as a result, a lot of the first part of Watershed were people that lived right around us. Not because we're amazing people, it's just... They got to know us. They want to be a part of that. The gospel draws people in. That's what you saw in that video. The gospel draws people. It's not our words that do it. It's the spirit that does it. It's 
Proclaiming the excellencies and then what? It's revealed by the Spirit. We don't have to, we're not the ones that change people's hearts. We tell how our heart's been changed. And we do that through relationship. If we're not in relationship, we can't do it. It can't be done. And we all live around someone. And some people, maybe if you live out in the country, your people aren't directly. Like we live literally right next to people. And one of the most interesting things I found when we moved in is people, I've talked about before, people have, I don't know if this is an army thing, but I don't, people put their grill in the front of their house. It tripped me out. The, only, the reason I say that it's weird for me is because the only people I know that are soldiers that do it, maybe because it's all I live around soldiers. But it's like, it was odd, right? The grill goes in the backyard, right? It's, it was weird. You know what it did? It developed a stronger community faster. Why? Because people will come to food. And if you're grilling in your front yard, like in your driveway, people will show up. It's, it's amazing how not only do they not, they can smell it now. Oh, they see it. Oh, they're grilling. And it developed community. It's the weirdest thing. We just got a new grill. So far, it's still in the garage and it trips me out every time I walk out there and I smell something. So you're like, wait a second. But it builds community. And it's simple, right? Yeah. You're living life around people. And then you tell the story. We don't want to be these people that are just directly throwing the gospel. Oh, everyone's going to hell. That's not going to bring people to us. You live relationships and you live like a normal person. And then how you were drawn from darkness to light becomes a story. And that they can hear and they can see that in your life. So we should be talking to our neighbors. We should be purposeful in that. When we start small groups in the fall, we want to be purposeful in trying to invite people in our relationships, in our little area to do it. We don't, want to be, we don't want to have groups based on stage of life. We want, we want to have groups based on proximity because that's where you live life. And we want to increase the consistency of seeing people, not just in passing as you come and go from work, but living life with people that are around you. That's how we want to do it. That's how we think it's better. And when we all do that, we're all united in the same mission to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into life. We can't forget this. Again, Edmund Clowney says, For a congregation that ignores mission will atrophy and soon find itself shattered by internal dissension. It will inevitably begin to lose its own young people, disillusioned by hearing the gospel trumpet sounded every Sunday for those who never march. I was looking at that and I was like, man, I pray that that's never a description of Watershed, that we never forget and ignore our mission to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. Why? Because we see, based on what he's saying, that one will atrophy, will stagnate, and will die. And you see this happening all over, sadly, in churches. that They've forgotten the mission of proclaiming those excellencies, and their missions become just love people or just provide for the needs. Those should happen, but we shouldn't forget that the main point of our mission is to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into light. That's salvation. And we also see that, that... Young people will leave the church. Isn't that the big topic right now with church? Why millennials are leaving the church? Maybe it has nothing to do with the church, but the church not being on mission. Maybe it's that way. But it also works in the home. It also works in the home. When young people, they want a purpose. They want to see what happens. And the easiest way for them to understand purpose is through words and action. So if our words and our actions don't match, then we can't expect our kids to follow suit. Oh, because they'll find that purpose somewhere else. They'll find someone that's, quote, real. 
And so that's, that, that, that worries me when I look at Keaton and, and, and Kelby and seeing, am I, is my actions matching my words? Not that it's always easy. I say we're supposed to be in relationship. It's hard. It's hard to be that person that then brings up church. Why? Because people turn it off. They, they, they throw that, they, they completely turn off. And it's frustrating, it's hard, and I haven't figured it completely out. But what I've found is the more often you do that, the easier it gets. And people respond more. Why? Because you're living in a life. And then our children are watching how we do this. And our children are seeing that what we say on Sunday mornings is what we're living Monday through Saturday. And they see that, and then they're not going to become disillusioned. They're actually going to be stronger in that. So we need to have our families, we need to have our church be united on mission locally. We want to be able to not only get the mission, but we want to proclaim the mission. We want to live the mission. We want to see that, that we were not a people, and now we are. That's the point of the church, is to be united on mission locally. And then that propels us out. Um, Brent's dad here was a pastor in Arkansas, right? right? And then I've got a little workbook that they gave me about him. He planted churches, started, started churches. And I was reading through it, and there's one part that I came to that, that, that he says, an effective mission must work, must work to work locally to be effective globally. And I wrote that, and I was like, how cool is that? Like, we got Brent here with us. So there's some of that that's passed down in him that we can use. But it's so true, right? It's that if we're going to be globally, effective globally, that's what we think. All these people are poor in all these other countries, yet we don't do it locally. It's not going to work. If it's not effective locally, it's not going to be effective globally. And that's what he's saying. So if our mission, if we're going to be united locally, that's going to propel us to be united globally. They both work together. We can't just go to the nations if we can't go to our communities. If we can't go to our neighbors, we're not going to go there. We're not going to be effective anyways. And so we need to see that, that while we're united on mission locally, we're also propelled to be united on mission globally. That's what we see. We understand that, that when we hear the mission propels us outward, it doesn't mean that the mission changes. That's something that we need to understand, is as the church, as we go global, the mission doesn't change. The message doesn't change. The audience does. We go global, and that's what you get. Look at Matthew 28, the Great Commission that most people understand as, when you look at Matthew 28, 19, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe, observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. We see that. We see that this is this global. Make disciples of all nations. We need to understand, we talked about it a few weeks ago, we'll talk about it again here, is that the command here is not go, the command is make disciples. We always miss our focus on this, and we focus on the go. We're going to be going. The, the, the command here is make disciples. The go is more of an as you go. As you go, make disciples. The command isn't to go, the command is to make disciples. Well, how do you do that? You do it locally, living in relationships, and you do it globally by partnering with people that are living in relationships. That's the point of us being in Acts 29. That's the point of us wanting to plant churches that plant churches. We think that planting a church is the most efficient, effective way to bring the gospel to people that don't have it. Why? Because then you plant a community within a community that then lives out that mission locally. And so we go global with the exact same 
mission, an exact same strategy, make disciples. If we're proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us, we're going to be growing people. We're going to be getting to the word. We're going to be teaching them to observe all that he said, all that he's commanded. We're going to teach them as we see that, and it's going to make disciples. We're going to do that in our lives here. We're going to do that regionally, nationally, globally, as we connect to other churches. That's the point of what we're doing. We seek to extend our influence globally, we, watershed, through church planting. Now, can we send someone out to, to Europe or Asia or somewhere like that? Probably not, because you've got to know the culture. If you're going to live relationally, it would be a little awkward if we just went there. That's why we partner with people there. That's why I love that video of seeing all the pastors through Acts 29 and having to read the subtitles because it's all the same message even though we don't understand it. But we can partner with those there that speak that language literally and through their lives and culture so we can partner with that. Why? Because we're on the same mission globally. It's to preach the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. That's what the gospel does, is it proclaims that, that we were dead in our trespasses, yet made alive in Christ. We can not remain on that mission, though, if that mission turns from the truth of the gospel. That mission turns from the truth of the gospel, which is what we see happening in churches. Again, Clowney, sorry I'm quoting him a lot. It's just a really good book on the church. It says, Salvation comes not by economic reform, political liberation, or ecological stewardship, by faith in a Savior who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we need to understand that as a church. Our mission isn't to go bring justice. Our mission is to proclaim excellencies. And will that lead to bringing justice to people who are victims of injustice? Yes. But that's not the mission. The mission is to proclaim the excellencies. And you do that by proclaiming the gospel Everything else filters in. Everything else comes. It's a byproduct of the gospel. You don't focus on injustice and then come back to the gospel. It's you focus on the gospel and that propels you outward to those around you. But there's not a quick fix again. I say that a couple years ago when we lived in Lampasas, we were building a fence. And if you've lived here long enough or if you've tried to dig around here, it's pretty much rock, right? That's where you love a rock bar. Well, at this point, we didn't have one. So we're building this fence, and it made me doubt the fact that we needed the dog that we were building the fence for. It's like, I, we can do away with the dog if we don't have to build this fence. And so me and one of my friends were hitting there, and we're getting tired of doing it, right? It's just all we have is a postal digger. And so you just slam it against rock. You're not doing anything. Maybe a little piece of dust or a little chip here. And my nephew was there. He was about 13 or 14 at this time. He's a, he's a big, strong athlete. He's a college football player now. And so he's like, well, let me have a turn, you know, which is, okay, sure. I was tired. And so what's he going to do? He got his gloves on, and he was getting ready. He was going to show us old guys how to do this. And he was probably stronger than us at that point, only being 13 or 14. And it was funny because he got it, and he never really dug post holes before, definitely not through rock. And so what he did is he got it, and as hard as he could, he threw the post hole down. Well, he forgot you have to hold on to it. So as soon as it hit the rock, it smashed him right back in the face. And it's probably the funniest thing that I've ever seen. I mean, he was dazed. And it was one of those times where you laugh and then you check if they're okay so you can keep laughing. Right? There wasn't check if you're okay, then laugh. I was laughing first, I'll admit. But, it was, but what was it? Because he was impatient. I'm going to show you. I'm just going to put more effort into it and be able to accomplish something. But it didn't work. Because it's not the effort that made the work. It's the tool. 
Just as in, in the church, it's not our efforts that do anything. It's the tool. It's the message that does the work. It's proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. That's what does the work. It's because it's him. Why? Because just like Peter, we're not going to proclaim who he is unless it's revealed to us by the Spirit anyways. So our effort doesn't get us anywhere. Just as my nephew Jarrett gets smacked in the face and, and dazed pretty good by thinking he can just throw effort into something, we often do that as the church, right? We just, if we just do more things. We don't need to do more things. We need to do the one thing. We need to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us. That's when we understand who we are as a church. That's when we see that our identity has united us globally because we were united locally because we're planted firmly in who Jesus Christ is, the cornerstone of everything that we have. Everything else works out of that. We live our lives in relationship with people, being real people. We don't need more Christian people. We need Christians that are real people living in everyday struggles of their life because that's when people see that it's possible to have. Because if we're perfect people and everyone on the outside looks at us, one, they see that we're not perfect. Two, they see that they can't obtain what we have. Why? Because their life is just as miserable as ours is. We're just putting on a face. So we just live life and hurt when we're hurting, suffer when we're surfing, suffering, but understand that we still have joy. Why? Because him who called us out of darkness into light. That's the difference of the message. That's what the church is. It's a, it's a body united in Jesus Christ, the union with Christ that preaches the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. That's what Peter's saying. We're chosen people to proclaim that. We did nothing to get it, so we shouldn't preach a message that says you can do something to gain it. It's proclaim that because we received it, so can you. We were dead in our trespasses just as they are. Yet we were made alive through Christ so that they can be made alive through Christ. It's all about him as the cornerstone, as the firm foundation. When we get that, we become one body that's the church. We become one body that's the church throughout the world because we're proclaiming the same mission. We do that here locally as Watershed Church, living lives in relationship with people around us, proclaiming how that happened individually in our lives. We also do that corporately here as we worship and we draw people to worship with us. So that's what the church does. It draws people to us. So we should be living life and we should be inviting people to join us in worship, to join us. That's why the church grows. Church doesn't grow because people seek out stuff all the time. That's one of the biggest mistakes we made. Last thing we'll, we'll talk about. One of the biggest mistakes we made coming into Watershed is we... we had the false assumption that, that people around here went to church. They don't. They don't. We've met more people in the last two years that didn't own a Bible than I have in my entire life. Not that these people are, are worse than anyone else. It's just that's the reality we live in. Is people are far from God. So we just need to live next to them and proclaim that message and invite them to join us because that's what the gospel does. It brings people to God. That's why the church is what it is. It brings people to worship. Why? Because we were dead in our trespasses and sin, yet made alive through Christ. That's why we worship. That's why we preach. That's why we live on mission, because we understand that, and we want those other people to experience that the same way we have. Let's pray.